Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, he is my song. You are good. take your Bibles and go to Proverbs chapter 4. Today we're going to talk about the heart. This is a teaching that never gets old, and I'll, I'll tell you why shortly. <laughs> but uh, Proverbs chapter 4, and go to verse 20. It says, My son, pay attention to what I say and listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. They are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. So Proverbs is a book of wise saying. A proverb is a wise saying. The author of the Proverbs was a man named Solomon. He was David's son. So you can read this. It's as if there was a conversation going on between a man and his son. And he's saying, son, listen to what I'm saying to you. Put these words in your heart. Those words will be health and life to your whole body. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But we can see here that these words that he's talking about are spiritual words and that there's a relationship between what you put into your heart and how you manifest your life, right? Verse 23, it says, above all, guard your heart or it is a wellspring or the wellspring of life. So guard your heart. So this is a father talking to his son, preparing his son for life, right? And he's saying, as you go out into your life, guard your heart, guard your heart, because it's out of this heart that you have a wellspring of life. So what happens if you don't guard your heart? That wellspring shuts down, doesn't it? If you allow your heart to become injured or corrupted, your life will be affected by that. So what's the heart? Well, uh, we know from medical knowledge that the heart is an organ, right? It's an organ that beats in your chest. But you think about it, I mean, songwriters and poets and, you know, sages throughout History have talked about the heart. Are they talking about this beating thing in your in your body? No, they're talking about something else. They're talking about this idea of the center of your emotions and the center of who you are spiritually. It's more than just a physical organ. When we talk about a person getting brokenhearted, right? Well, that's not talking about a physical ailment. That's talking about an emotional ailment. You, your heart's broken. I think we all have felt that at some time or another. You love a person from your heart. Is it from the physical organ? No, but where do you feel it? You hate a person from your heart. You desire from your heart. You have revulsion from your heart. So you understand how the heart is the center of you, right? It's the center of you. Verse 24, put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. 
Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. That's interesting, huh? So he's saying, take the firm path, the firm path. He says, don't go off the path and get caught in the quagmire. Verse 27, do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. How about that? Keep your foot from evil. So we're talking about guarding your heart. Then we're talking about staying on the path and keeping your foot from evil, right? The wisdom of guarding your heart is to pay attention to your life, what you say, what you do, the path you take, the people you befriend. It says in another place in the Bible that bad relationships corrupt good morals. There's a story in the gospel that illustrates this. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees are a religious group of people and tended to be on the overbearing side, a little, little heavy-handed. They tended to be very legalistic and very preoccupied with men's rules, and they neglected God's rules. So if you turn to Mark chapter 7, Mark 7. So when you read the gospels, you read Jesus, and Jesus is a breath of fresh air. You're dealing with different groups of religious people who I just wouldn't want to go to church with them, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were wagging their finger at everybody saying, you're, an, you're a sinner, you're evil, and Jesus was doing what? He was coming along and delivering people and setting them free. So in Mark chapter 7, look in verse 1, it says, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. So these guys had nothing better to do than to go around, you know, checking people's hands. Uh, it says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the traditions of the elders. This is a, uh, a, a ceremony called, let's see if I can pronounce it right, Netalot Yadayim. Uh, I looked it up on YouTube today, and it was very interesting. They, they would take a cup, and it had two handles on it. And they would fill that cup with water. And it was so funny. They filled it from a spigot. So they filled this thing, and then they would pour water on one hand. And so they'd take the cup, the two-handed uh, two cup, hold it with one hand, the right hand, pour water on the left hand. Then they would take, take hold of it with the left hand, pour water on the right. They would do that three times. And then they would recite this prayer and thank God that they could wash their hands. So uh, God had no such, I mean, God, God had cleanliness rules in the Bible. And that was for a reason, because back during biblical times, they weren't aware of microbes and diseases. So they were taught to be hygienically clean. And there was this notion of cleanliness. And we got no problem with that, right? The problem is, is that the Pharisees took these common sense measures and made laws out of them. The point that Jesus took with them was that it was more than just washing your hands. It was keeping your heart clean. Verse four, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of pots and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your uh, disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. 
He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their what? Hearts are far from me. Wow, interesting. So God is saying, God is saying, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You prophesy, you act all religious, but your hearts are far from God. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Verse 7, it says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So this is an interesting aspect of what we refer to as religion. And I think that it breaks down pretty cleanly that you have religions that are predominantly reliant on the words of men, and then you have religions that are reliant on the word of God, right? So which one do we want? The word of God. Okay, so verse 8, it says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own tradition. Isn't that interesting? You, you have a fine way of setting aside God's commands for your own traditions. Go to verse 17. It says, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him, about this parable. Jesus looked at him, and you can see Jesus. I mean, it, it says, are you so dull? That sounds insulting, doesn't it? It wasn't. I'm sure Jesus wasn't that blunt. He probably looked at his disciples and said, come on, guys, are you so dull? Really? He said, don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? See? So now Jesus, now, now think about that statement. Is that true? Well, certainly. Uh, what, what does a doctor do before he goes into the operating room? He cleans his hands, right? So Jesus isn't giving them a pass to, you know, go around not being, you know, hygienically unclean. But he's basically saying, look, it's not the food that's the issue or the fact that you picked up, you know, something and ate it. That's silly. He's emphasizing now, and, and we're going to see this happen, spiritual uncleanness, spiritual uncleanness. Look at verse 19. For it doesn't go into his heart, but it goes into his stomach, and then it comes out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Verse 20, he went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, from a man's heart, out of men's heart, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Folly means foolishness. All these evils come from inside, and these are what make a man unclean. Now that's interesting, isn't it? So these Pharisees were all backwards, right? They were like, oh, you didn't wash your hands, so you are unclean. And Jesus is like, mm, no, no, it's not that which goes in, but that which comes out. What do you have in your heart, right? Remember, it's the wellspring of life, right? Go to Psalm chapter 51, Psalm 51. That's why it's so important for us to guard our hearts, because out of it comes life. Psalm 51. And look in verse 1, it says, For the director of music, a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. All right, so, so David has uh, been convicted. David had a little uh, rendezvous with this woman named Bathsheba, and it was wrong. Not only that, but he also got Bathsheba's husband killed in the process. So David did something really bad, and... Uh, and he's having a repentant heart. He's calling out to God, and and he was feeling grief because of his sin. Where was he feeling that grief? Right there. 
right? It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my sin, my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wow, isn't that something? So we live in a culture now that doesn't talk much about sin, right? What are we talking about? Well, yeah, well, we don't even use the word sin. What do we do? If somebody's struggling, it's, uh, you know, it's psychology that we turn to, right? And that a person has issues or whatever, right? And and we don't look to the fact that a lot of times it's the sin within that's causing our problems, right? You know, we live in a kind of you do you and I'll do me kind of culture, you know? We don't talk about things like sin. You start talking to somebody about sin, people are like, you keep your religion to yourself, right? But sin is sin, whether you acknowledge it or not. God created humankind. God created our minds. He created our hearts. He knows that how we work, right? And he knows that if a person has sin in their lives, what happens? They're reaping consequences of those sins. So the objective here is if we're talking about guarding our hearts, living righteously, right? Guarding our hearts from sin. I think about some of the consequences of sin, inner uneasiness, anxiety, lack of peace, anger, unhappiness, sadness, dejection. These are all things that manifest themselves. And so people will go to a psychologist and what he'll get? He'll get pills to help dull the pain. Is that what we want? Do we want pills to dull the pain? I don't. I want to live a life that's in harmony with God so I can manifest the goodness he promises me, right? I don't want to, you know, throw a blanket over my pain. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. See that? And that's just the way it is. There's a, there's a cause and effect, a moral cause and effect of the universe. A person can jump out of an airplane, right, without a parachute. He can argue with gravity all the way down. But is he subject to gravity? Yes, yes. And he's going to hit the ground just like, you know, the believer. The point is, is that we may disagree with religion and we may say, I don't, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Okay, well, that's fine. But you're still subject to the moral laws of the universe. And you're going to manifest the consequences if you're living in this sinful state. It's just the way it is. Verse five, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's interesting, huh? If you think about original sin, part of our nature. We all struggle with sin, every one of us. There isn't a person here who doesn't struggle with sin. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What's the inmost place? Your heart, your heart. So that's where truth resides. You know, some people hold the truth. Other people are held by the truth. God expects us to be held by the truth, which means that it's not just something we put up here, it's something we put here. This is what we want. We want truth here, truth in the inmost place. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 15 says, it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Meaning, who's going to dwell in an intimate relationship with you? Who may live on your holy hill? That's a question. He who walks, whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous 
who speaks the truth in his heart. How about that? Isn't that great? Another psalm I was thinking about says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, an undivided heart. What does that mean to have a, a divided heart? Divided loyalties, right? Think about a, a man and his wife, right? If he has a divided heart, he's got his eye over on his girlfriend, right? And, you know, wife, his girlfriend, he's got a divided heart. Well, it's same with God, right? We can say, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength but I got my little idol over here, right? So we're supposed to love God with an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Look at verse seven. It says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is a, um, what, like a weed or, you know, they used to use hyssop to put paint. They would paint with hyssop, right? It was kind of a straw. It says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You see that? Isn't that wonderful that the, the yearning within the human soul is to be cleansed and purified and delivered from impurities, right? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. It means, God, I can't stand my sin anymore. Every time I look at it, it hurts me. He said, God, put that away from you. And then listen to verse 10. I love it. Create in me a pure heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And, and that there's a word we use in Christianity. It's called redemption. And I'm a big lover of redemption. Do you think the Pharisees loved redemption? No, not at all. What did the Pharisees like? Condemnation. But a true person of God, a true person of faith, has God's heart and the Christ's heart, which is redemption, which means, look, I don't care where you're where you've been, I want to see where you're going, right? I want you to be renewed, to be washed. We got the records in the gospels about the the leper. You know what a leper is, Angie? A leper is a it, leprosy was a skin disease and it would just it would affect you and and uh and back during biblical times there wasn't a cure for it. And so these lepers would walk around and if you were leprous, I mean nobody came near you. You were an outcast. You had no friends. You had nothing. You lived in a leper colony. You were treated terribly. And there, I was just watching The Chosen the other day, the, the show about Jesus. Oh, it's such a great show. Anyway, this leper comes walking up to Jesus and everybody, stand back, stand back. And one, somebody pulls out his knife, you stand back. And, uh, and Jesus said, put your knife away and walks over to the guy. Here he is. He's just got leprosy all over him. And Jesus, what did he do? He hugged the guy just hugged them. And the guy was totally delivered from his leprosy. And I get all teary-eyed when I see it because, you know, you think about it, we're all kind of lepers in a way, right? Because we all have sin and we could treat each other as lepers or we could do what Jesus did and embrace the leper and say, come on in, let's deal with the sin, let's deal with your disease, whatever, and let's get over it, right? That's redemption. That's Christianity, true Christianity. Go to Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah 17. I'll tell you, when I first became a Christian way back in 1983, I, uh, that was what attracted me most was redemption because I was fully aware of my sin. I didn't need anybody pointing out my sin to me because I knew what my sin was all about. I was a mess, but I was welcomed in and loved and told, look, 
you you can get forgiven and not just forgiven in a general sense, but forgiven deeply that God, the God of the universe forgives me. He forgives my sins. And that's it. Jeremiah 17. Now, this is an interesting verse. Look at verse nine. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's an interesting question, isn't it? The heart is corrupt. Your heart is corrupt. And then it says, who can understand it? In other words, it's, it's a rhetorical question. It's saying you can't fix your own heart. You can't fix your own heart. You can go, though, to a place where your heart can be fixed. And that's the thing that, that we're talking about here. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. So that's, that's where a person just comes before God and says, here I am. It's not pretty, but here I am. Fix me, God. Fix me. And that's the beautiful thing about redemption. Uh, I was thinking of uh, Psalm 34, where it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are of a crushed spirit. Isn't that beautiful? When a person comes to God, oh, man, just laying your heart out. And it, it's not a one-time affair. I mean, you know, when you first come to God, you know, and you say, God, fix me, there's a lot of fixing throughout the years. You know, I've been a Christian for coming on 40 years now, and I still need redemption because I still struggle with sin, right? We all do. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 25. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. What's an idol? An idol, simple answer, is anything that comes between you and God, right? That's an idol. Remember, we were just talking about a divided heart. And see, this is what God does not want. He doesn't want us to have a divided heart when we come to him. Anything that divides our heart is an idol. That's all it is, right? Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Those are interesting words, aren't they? A heart of stone. So if you think about it, if you got a heart of stone, hard heart, you got this heart of stone, what does that mean? Well, in one sense, it means you don't really feel anymore, right? You know, when you're a kid, you have this heart of flesh, but the older you get, you know, you get hard, harder and harder as you get older. And pretty soon that heart is no longer feeling things. In a spiritual sense, what, what it means is that the, your heart is no longer responding to God's quiet promptings. Does that make sense? So you see where the hard heart really affects your spiritual walk with God, because God is trying to lay things on you and say, you know, this is the path, walk in it, and you can't hear him, right? And that's, that's important. Verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, that's interesting that God will move us to follow his decrees. So it's not a it's not a case where God throws his word out there, his rules and says, OK, follow them. And, you know, if you do them all perfectly, you know, we'll hang out. Right. It's not like that. It's that God's right there with you. And he says, look, you know, I know. My word doesn't necessarily come naturally to you guys because you're a sinful bunch of people, but I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to move you to follow my decrees, my word. And as you follow my decrees, what does it do? 
it blesses you. So God's involved every step of the way here. Isn't that something? God wants us to have a renewed spirit within. So why is God interested in having giving to us a you know a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone? Because God's love. God loves us. I want the best for my boys. I love them. I want the best for them. Naturally, if God is my father, he's going to want the best for me. He desires to have a relationship with me. He knows that I cannot relate to him if I've got a hard heart. And God relates to me through my spirit and through my heart. He understands that when the heart is corrupted, when it's defiled, we cannot perceive him properly. Go to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5, and look at verse 1. This is, uh, these are called the Beatitudes. This is, this is Jesus' uh, Sermon on the Mount, very famous. People who aren't even Christians read this because it's so wise. Isn't that something? So it says in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's one of my favorite ones. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Isn't that cool? So if you deal with somebody in mercy, right, you cut them some slack, God cuts you some slack. That's pretty awesome. And then here it is right here. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Isn't that wonderful? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So a prerequisite to, and it doesn't mean I'll literally see him. It means I'll perceive him. So a prerequisite for knowing God, for perceiving God. You know, there's some people, you they'll, they're like, oh, I, I got nothing to do with religion, you know. God is a figment of mankind's imagination. Well, okay. You know why that is? Because he can't see God. You know, it's like a blind man mocking sight. But for the person who has a pure heart, they're able to perceive God. This is why we're told to guard our hearts. Guard our hearts. They're the wellspring of life. You can't walk with God if you allow your heart to become corrupted, right? Now, see, this is interesting because what were the Pharisees all about? Pharisees were all about, well, you know, I won't sin openly because I don't want anybody to see me sin, right? But in the privacy of their own thoughts and the privacy of their own homes, plenty of sin, right? And so what happened? As the years went by, they got harder and harder and harder on the inside. I mean, you know, true character, and you've probably heard this before, true character is, is what are you doing when nobody's watching. And to a Christian, there's somebody who's always watching, right? And that's God. God's always watching. We know that. You know, I was thinking about it, you know, through Jesus Christ, the word says that we have access, boldness and access with confidence unto the Father. That isn't necessarily something that you can name and claim, right? Why? Because if your heart's hard, you may have access, but you're getting nothing out of it, right? That divided heart. God wants us not only to have the access to him, which we do through Christ, absolutely. But he also wants us to have the ability to commune with him. And we can't commune with him if we have a hard heart. Our hard heart precludes us from knowing him. Go to Proverbs 21. God is all about the heart. 
He's not about the ceremony. He's not about the ritual. He's not about whether you wash your hands or not, right? He's all about the heart. Proverbs 21, 2. So all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. See, God is always pondering the heart. Uh, 1 Samuel 16. You can fool men. You can even fool yourself, but you can't fool God. God sees. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading this up. Uh, this book right now on kings and thrones, and a, a good chunk of it has to deal with the Europeans, right? And Christianity in Europe. And boy, there were some really devilish things that were done in the name of God. I mean, it's incredible. And you say, how could you possibly murder somebody and think that you were doing God, you know, doing God's will? I mean, it was incredible. There's a, a custom God, you know, a God of your particular environment, there's that God that you grew up with, you know, and, yeah, I believe in God. Everybody believes in God, right? I would go, to, I go to church. So there's, there's the God of custom, and then there's the God of relationship, right? You know, people go to church all the time, and, they, and God doesn't even cross their thoughts. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the God of a relationship, that you have a relationship with him. God weighs your heart. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Uh, by the way, this is uh, Samuel's supposed to be picking out the next king, right? And uh, and and Samuel's like, hmm, he's got a very kingly stature. I think he's the guy. And God's like, nope. Well, what about this guy? He's the oldest. Nope. And he's and then finally he says, uh, is there another son around here? And they're like, yeah, there's David. He's out tending the sheep. And so they go get David. But anyway, this is the Lord talking to Samuel, and he says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that beautiful? Proverbs chapter 3. It's like I said, you can fool man, but you can't fool God. God sees. Now, that's downright terrifying. When you first hear about it, I know when I first heard about it that God sees everything. I was terrified because I've been I've been hiding stuff for years. <laughs> but there's this. I mean, think about this. There's a certain peace in coming clean with a God who can see everything. There's a certain peace to living your life openly before this God who sees everything. Do you want to see what I'm saying? I don't have to take antidepressants in order to feel good about myself. That, that doesn't even enter into the equation. I'm open before God. Isn't that something? Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, all your heart. And don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. You know what fear the Lord means? It doesn't mean that we're like, it means that we recognize that he sees everything, that we're not fooling him, right? That there's a, there's an accountability there that I have to give it an answer, right? Why, you know, why did I just do that? Well, I could deceive myself and say, well, that was the proper thing to do, right? But if I know God's checking in on me, I have a little bit of objectivity in my thinking, right? Accountability and God's not approving. So that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. We're going to wrap it up here. Got a couple of verses and then We'll wrap it up. Jeremiah chapter 10. And look at verse 23. It says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. Interesting. It is not for man to direct his steps. 
Now think about that. I mean, we live in a country where, you know, do your own thing. But really what it comes down to is it's not within us to choose our own. I mean, my life is not my own. It's the Lord who directs my steps. He directs my steps. Now I can get with the program and say, okay, Lord, you know better than I do, you know, show me my steps. Or I can fight with him and argue with him and deny him. And, and that can go on to the next time I have a crisis. You see what I mean? So, and then we're going to end up in uh, Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews four and verse nine. It says, there remains then a Sabbath day or a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a Sabbath rest. What's that referring to? Well, that's, you know, when God got done with all his work, right? When he, you know, six days of creation, seventh day was the Sabbath. At, on the seventh day, he rested. I mean, it, it's in reference to that, but it's in reference also to the works of man, how man spends his life in working, working, working for things, right? And, and it's, and then they finally, you know, give up trying to do everything and allow God, right? It's a Sabbath day's rest. It's like, you know, I have peace. It says, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Now listen to this verse here. It says, for the word of God is living and active, right? The Bible, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, okay? You guys have heard me say this before. Adrian Rogers, he was, um, he was um, just an awesome minister. I used to live out on Merritt Island, and he said, every book of man... You know, every book that a man picks up, that that man reads that book, right? The Bible is the only book that reads you. Isn't that something? That you're being read by the Bible. You're being evaluated through God's word. And that's what it means here, that it, it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. It discerns them. You, you can, Like I said, you can fool people, but you can't fool God. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. How about that? That's just awesome. Like I said, when you first learn about this, terrifying, terrifying. But when you become accustomed to this, it's a beautiful thing that you have a life that's examined by God. First Timothy chapter one, first Timothy one, look at verse three. This is Paul speaking, and he says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, but uh, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of philosophies out there in the world, people saying, well, this is the way you should live, and this is the way you should live, and this is the way you should live, right? There's a lot of them out there. It says, these promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command, right, of avoiding these doctrines, these, these, uh, these philosophies out there, it says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Isn't that something? That's what I want. I mean, there are people who have all the money in the world. They have anything that money could buy. They hang out with the coolest friends. They drive the coolest cars. They have everything that you would ever want except one thing. 
peace. I have no peace. That's not a successful, well-lived life, is it? Psalm 26. So for the for the person who really wants this peace of soul, right, this peace of heart, this goodness of heart, it's not something that you just sit around and wait for. It's something that you should actively go after. Look at Psalm 26. Look at verse 2. It says, test me, Lord. Test me, O Lord, and try me and examine my heart and my mind. For your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. Isn't that just beautiful? Your love is ever before me, and I walk continually in your truth. Examine me, God. Examine me. So this is just the opposite of being terrified that God is looking in on your life. It's like, look more. (laughs) You know, examine me. You know, find those areas in my life that are keeping me from walking in that goodness that your word promises me. And then finally in Psalm 119, go to Psalm 119, look in verse 9, 119 verse 9. It says, how can a young man or a young person, how can a young person keep their way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Isn't it beautiful? That's it. That's it. So let me finish up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we we just thank you for that. And we thank you, Father, we come before you and we ask that you forgive us our sins. And Father, we have many. We, uh, we're foolish and we're deceived. We pursue things that we shouldn't. And Father, we get ourselves into masses and Father, we pay for it in our hearts that we realize that we're separated from you and we're burdened. We thank you for Jesus and how he said, come to me, you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, Father, we thank you for that. And we thank you, Father, for the truth of Scripture. And we we thank you, Father, that you deliver us and that, Father, you redeem us and that, Father, you place our feet on high places. So thank you for these things. Thank you for blessing this wonderful fellowship in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. Oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the fire inside my veins, the echo
Good. 